Boom. We are live. What's up, What's Sam? Up, man? What's good? I'm good. <laughs> what about you? I'm doing well. I literally just woke up about 30 minutes ago. So get my day started, some coffee and you know, essentials. Yeah. Pretty That's, good. Yeah. Nice. Where, where are you exactly in the world? I am uh, all the way on top. I'm at, I'm in Norway, Bergen, Norway, one of the most rainiest cities in the world. We have a record huh. of uh, 80 days straight of rain. So, oh my god! So I think we're at the top of the list when it comes to uh, yeah, bad weather. Yeah, your English is incredibly good. I, I almost was expecting you to say like Washington State or something. <laughs> I did not expect. And our delay isn't that bad either. I was worried. Uh, sometimes people over in Europe like the delay could be difficult for mm. conversations, but. See. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, I, yeah, I've been watching a lot of movies my whole life, so I think uh, I think Bad Boys and uh, uh, Die Hard make me get this American <laughs> accent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. I I'm trying to think. Yeah, no, pretty much every movie that is uh, the, the Netflix, I think, has sort of pushed a a bit more of uh, like other languages or the primary language that this was made in, and then you can watch with English subtitles or overdubs. But Netflix is the only one that I ever stumble on where it's like, oh, I really want to watch this. This looks really high quality, and it's not in English. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. But do you feel strange? I feel, like, I feel it's really strange watching like really good movies that are not English. Probably because I huh. grew up with it my whole life. So when yeah. when it's like in Danish or French, it's just like it looks natural, like looking at it. But trying to read the subtitles at the same time is like it takes away the experience for me, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten used to it just because for whatever reason, the audio in our house, the way I have the speaker set up and everything, the center channel of the surround sound. It's just a little hard to hear. So I usually have captions on now, even if it's in English, just to be sure that I'm hearing what I'm supposed to, which is kind of <laughs> so, annoying. And I've actually, I've read a couple articles about that as like a, a debate and an issue in Hollywood, in the industry, that the, the way mixing is occurring now uh, for surround sound, it, it tends to drown out a lot of the uh, narrative, the, what people are saying. That's and, strange. Uh, so when you have a really the, good sound system, you actually can hear what they're saying. That's awesome. <laughs> I know, right? That's it's ridiculous. But even uh Christopher Nolan, the director, got a ton of pushback from the movie one of my favorites, uh specifically Interstellar, mm. because he, I guess, either preference-wise or on purpose for some artistic motivation, mixed the audio to be so low that you literally would have to strain to hear it. Mm. And I guess he said he hinted on some like fact that it was on purpose, like he wanted it was during parts where the, you didn't necessarily need to understand what they were saying, but it would add to the stress of the experience. It would be like high stress moments where there's a lot of really loud machinery sounds and all this. I don't know. It was an interesting take on it, but I think he was mm. just making excuses for bad mixing. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Which, you know, a lot of artists tend to do that. They, they make something and then, uh, reflecting back on it, they, inter they have new interpretations that they did not intentionally, uh, account for yeah, while it was supposed it. to be but that it can way. kind of make sense yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like a happy accident yeah exactly or somebody else sees something see something deeper within it and you're like yeah i guess i did sort of mean that i bet that happens with songwriters a lot with various lyrics having mm. different interpretations from fans 
I bet you that happens all the time. People think it's about something that the artist, the, the actual creator was like, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> it wasn't about that at all, but sure. <laughs> yeah. I think people just add meaning to things when they listen to it. They're like, oh, that was so meaningful to me. And it's like, like my tattoo artist, he's like, he hates when people comes, uh, come with tattoos that means a lot. Because he's like, oh, I just want to make cool tattoos. I don't care about the goddamn meaning of it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I could totally see that. As a tattoo artist, it's got to be so weird that your day, it's its almost like being a wedding photographer in one way, in that like you are there for a day that is not going, a moment that is never, you, there are no redos. No. It's the wedding day. And how you capture it, it is captured. There is no uh, second chance with that. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, gosh, that's like 10, 10x. That's 100x with the tattoo. It's mm. permanent ink on, a, on someone's skin. And you know you're going to have bad days as a tattoo artist where you're just maybe not as on on point, literally, and accurate. I don't know. I would think. Yeah. yeah. A bit shaky. <laughs> the day after. Yeah, shaky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hungover or something. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I have... How many tattoos do you have? I have three, and they're all very simple. I have uh, my whole leg or like for, from knee down and then i have a chest piece and i have one here and one here but this is actually my daughter's handwriting the first time she learned how to write her whole name in one go and but it looks like a drunken tattoo it just looks that's, like uh, uh, that's great though it does but it also looks you know childish in a way that it makes perfect sense as soon as you tell the story and it's a great opportunity to talk about your daughter yeah. and tell the story mm. because I'm sure people look at that like, huh, what is that? <laughs> Cause your other ones are so great and, and, you know, expert clearly. Mm. And then you have, but uh, I'm yeah. sure that's the how funny, old is your daughter now? Have um, you had that a while? She's uh, turning five uh, in one month. Uh, but the funny thing is that she, she probably learned how to write it when she's like one and a half, almost two. And then I just kept the drawing for like one and a half year because I didn't have the time because with kids, you don't have time for anything. So then I just no. kept the drawing. And then when I had the time, I took it. And when I came home and showed it to her, she was like, uh, what's that? And she's, she, her name is Amalia and, um, or M, Emily, Emily, Norwegian name. Mm. And then mm. um, the M is like a, a small letter M. But she, now she mm. knows how to write like big letters. So she's like, what's that? Oh, it's an M. She's like, no, it's not. I don't like it. I'm like, Oh, oh! <laughs> so I just took took this tattoo for you, and now you don't like it. That's great. That's funny. Yeah. I I write better now. <laughs> you yeah. should have waited. <laughs> so Sam, where that's are you? That's really great. I love where it. are you uh, in the world? Oh, I'm in uh, Baltimore. So that's the closest bigger city. You'd probably actually know exactly where it is. Is DC? So I'm about yeah. 40 minutes out of DC, Washington. Mm. So East Coast, right in mid band. We also get a lot of rain, and it's cloudy today again. But yeah, it's whatever. That's what it is. So um, how's life? In, are you uh, like? What? Yeah, life is good, man. Life is good. I've been so happy. I waited about, oh gosh, I ordered it mid-June. Uh, I got this really cool e-bike. It's it's mm. sort of, I don't know if you're into like bikes or motorcycles or two-wheeled uh, vehicles at all, but I'm really not, but this thing just looks so neat. It's called the mm. Onyx, O-N-Y-X. Yeah. They hand make them in the U.S., uh, in California, but it takes like literally I ordered it mid June and I only got delivery like two weeks ago. Oh yeah. Uh, it took that long to make the order. And they've also just been swamped with so many people <clears throat> working from home now, yeah. uh, you know, wanting like a fun activity to do outside their orders are through the roof. So anyway, I got this e-bike. It's, mm. it's 
but it, it kind of has the styling and it's the size of like a cafe racer, like mm. a small motorcycle. Nice. And it, but it's because it's all electronic, 100%. It has one big battery in the middle, goes 75 miles on range, mm. uh, of range. And then it will do zero to 60 in, oh, I want to get this right. Let me look it up. But incredibly fast. And because it's all electric, there's uh, instant torque and no gear changing. So it's yeah. a completely linear uh, acceleration. And it's the most freaking fun thing in the world. It's called the Onyx RCR. And it has, literally, it looks like a little motorcycle, but it uh, has pedals, like a bicycle. Yeah. So you can pedal the thing. It weighs 150 pounds, so you're not going very far. <laughs> but you can pedal it, which is interesting. Yeah, and so you, uh, anyway, I've been, oh, any day that it's been nice. Go. That's awesome. Did you? Yeah. Any day that it's been, uh, yep. Yep. It's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. So that silver uh, panel is, well, actually under the wood panel, that thing slides off and the battery is stored there. So it just comes right out. And uh, yeah. So zero to 60 or sorry, zero to 30 in four seconds. Nice. So it's pretty snappy, especially for something so small and, you know, lightweight or relative speaking to, to most motorcycles. Anyway, so I've been writing that any excuse and chance that I can get. And it's, it's funny because I'm literally, you know, I've been in the same neighborhood now for like six years, the same part of the city. And I'm, I feel like I'm experiencing, experiencing it very differently being on a bike yeah. versus a car, mm. you know, car, you kind of feel like you're in this safe capsule and everything is almost like a projection of the world onto yeah. your windows. It doesn't really feel like you're a part of it. Maybe if you have the windows down, but on a bike like this, yeah, you can kind of stop and pull over literally anywhere you want. Yeah. As long as it's not too dangerous. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you just feel much more connected with your surroundings and it's uh it's delightful. Although it's unfortunate it took so long because most things are kind of dead around here. Mm. Obviously most most days are too cold to deal with it. But yeah. You got winter yeah. tires? And no, I don't think I'm gonna attempt to even try it if it's icy or snowy out. Like spike tires. We're not we're not winter. like you. We're not like you down here. <laughs> <laughs> when it's an inch or two of snow, people are like, nope, I'm staying home today. It's yeah, well it's not that bad, but it's people aren't very tolerant. I actually had a, a literal ice truck driver lose control of his um vehicle. It was a like a government truck that was de icing. Mm. He he lost control on one of these big trucks that are meant for it and yeah. wrecked my car a couple of years ago. They like mm. slid right into it in the middle of the night. So people don't know how to drive here. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Even yep. in good weather. Yeah. Yeah. I've been looking at those e-bikes and I've been like back and forth because I love, usually when I work, I drive my car everywhere and I love my car. So uh, usually I just take that, even if it's like for a one minute ride, I just like, yeah, I'm going to jump in the car. What I'm thinking about is since there's so much rain here, I'm afraid it's going to get destroyed if I ride it like, like I would usually. But now we got these crazy e-scooters here in... Um, like a oh, like the stand-up ones. Yeah, that where you like you quick swipe with your phone and then it unlocks and you go. Yeah, so that's like ex inner city extreme sport because that yeah. they go so fast and um, at least here in the city we have a lot of like I don't know what you call it in the state. We have something called Bridgestone, which is like small bricks, like slick surface, hmm. which they cover the um, the ground with instead of like asphalt or or similar. So they get huh. really slippery because it's from the old days and they. To, uh, to, I was going to gonna ask, is this like, a new thing or it's, so it's, no, they're it's keeping like, it alive yeah, for the aesthetic and the, yeah, yeah, probably hundreds of years old, but they keep it, they keep it alive in the city. Just like to keep the, the feeling in the city. But I'm serious when it's wet and there's like leaves falling down, it's like soap. So it's like, so I've been like having oh. uh, near death experiences like every day here. <laughs> 
Got to get. Do they require you to wear a helmet? I know some cities here in the U.S. are trying to make that a thing, but like, who who's walking around with a helmet mm. to just maybe get on a scooter? I don't think it's practical. But yeah, it's, it would be safer. I just got an awesome helmet this uh, this summer from a from a, I got it here. I'll show you. I got this insane skydiving helmet, which is also uh, like a ski helmet from an artist. Uh, he's actually from California, but he moved to Norway. Um, so I've been looking for excuses to use that, but, um, I haven't like, it looks pretty crazy. Like going into the city with this like green thing on your head. That's cool though. It's, yeah. it looks pretty low profile too. It's not too helmety yeah. in terms of no, some of those motorcycle helmets could get kind of yeah. <laughs> like you're walking around with a thing. Yeah. yeah. It's huge. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what, like are that. you riding motor- motorcycles? Uh, I do have a motorcycle, yeah. like a proper one. It's still pretty small. It's a Suzuki TU250, mm. so it's 250cc. Yeah. It's, again, sort of that cafe racer styling thing, but I really sort of stopped because when I said people don't know how to drive here, I mean that legitimately. Like Maryland, the state that I'm in, is yeah. known for bad drivers. My insurance rate is more expensive here than almost anywhere else <laughs> in the country because accident rates are so high. So I'm pretty uncomfortable on the bike, on the motorcycle. Mm. And the e-bike, the Onyx, I really just kind of ride around my local neighborhood. Yeah. So, and and with the motorcycle, it's so loud, and it, you know, it's yeah. it smells, and there's all this, uh, almost like pomp and, and pomp and circumstance about the bike. Like it's a big deal. It's but yeah. the e-bike, it's almost completely silent. Mm. It's so it just there's it removes a lot of that friction. I know a lot of motorcycles like the loudness and the. Yeah the vibration and the sound of the motorcycle, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I just like the speed and the low profile of it. So the e-bike is perfect. And really, I just, I, my motorcycle has been sitting, I should really just sell it because yeah. I, I worry. Uh, it's also a bit uh, slower to stop. Mm. The e-bike has regenerative braking the way yeah. like an electric car would, mm. you just tap on the brake and it's a start in it. Like, um, almost unnaturally slows itself down to try and recoup some of the, the, you know, uh, energy from you already in motion and recharge the battery with that power. So you can stop in really, really fast, Mm. which feels good. It feels like you have a lot of power, um, and real time response, uh, motorcycles, not, not the case. You can stop quickly, but it's not the same. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been looking, uh, uh, I've been like, uh, during this pandemic times, you have so much more time than you, you would have any anytime else to like hang around Instagram and look. Yeah. So my dad has been <laughs> running Harleys for like, since I was a kid. And nice. um, like 10 years ago, we also rode like route 66. That's a big thing in Norway going to America to ride route 66 from like Chicago to LA. So we did yeah. that. And I was on the back, just like snapping pictures the whole time. And wow. I never really got the kick for like, Oh, I want my own bike. But this summer I've been yeah. looking at cafe racers actually for like, Days and days in and day out. <laughs> so now I found this awesome company from uh, Colorado, which custom makes bikes. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. I really need one of those. <laughs> that would be, I mean, yeah, the, the styling and the things that they can do, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like a work of art? You're just like riding yes. around something that, and yeah. I love the custom part that nobody else has the motorcycle that you yeah. have. So if you just go to the store and buy a Harley that makes a lot of noise and looks cool, it's, it's not the same. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like cameras in a way, like some of the more retro style cameras, like Leica and all that sort of feels like it 
comes from the same motivation in terms of if this is just an inspiring object to look at, like it makes you want to go out and take it for a ride or it makes you want to pick it up and go take some photos with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I love uh, stuff like that. But part of the fun, you know, if, if, shipping times are insane or they're really expensive. Part of the fun is just the process mm. of research and yeah. seeing what's out there and getting yourself excited and like picturing the dream in your mind of you getting on and, and, mm. and going for a ride. <clears throat> Once it's actually delivered, it's still incredibly fun, but it's a different part of the experience. So I, because it took so long for me to get this bike, I was literally like six months of waiting. Uh, I started to realize like, you know, I really should, I should appreciate the anticipation every day. I'm waking up waiting to see if I got the email yeah. that, it was ready for shipping you know it's fun it's cool yeah and that's the best but, part when it when it arrives it's just like oh you're not as cool as you pictured that you would look like and then you're like ah, okay i'm just gonna ride it around yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah in your mind you leave out all the tedious steps of you know checking that your tires are inflated or making sure it's unlocked or locked and yeah. like everything's yeah which it's fine, whatever. <laughs> but it's um, it's interesting. Do you buy many things from the U.S.? Is that is that a thing? You've mentioned your your helmet and stuff like that. Or, or is the U.S. sort of a? Nope. So I feel like a lot of people here search uh, kind of your area of the world for really interesting, more artistic sort of uh, unique items to buy and bring back. <laughs> for I'm very reason. like I go very much on impulse. So whatever I. Okay. What, I, I'm very picky also. So when I, fir when I first see something that I really like, I just, I need to have exactly that thing. So if it's from Japan or if it's from Taiwan or wherever it's from, I just know I need to get one of those. But probably the place I spent most of my money is B&H, which is uh, <laughs> yeah. like the devil's totally. den for photographers. Now, don't forget about Adorama. I've actually noticed B&H was my go-to for a long time. And uh, the only reason I started being frustrated was because it's like everybody's go-to. So if anything was in high demand, they they always run out of stock. It's yeah. crazy. And Adorama and a couple other... Adorama is definitely the next biggest place, but there's a few other... Uh, official dealers that, yeah, they tend to have stock for a little bit longer. They might still sell out in a day, but you know, the big brands still seed a certain number of inventory to Adorama and Adorama has updated most of their policies and stuff to be just as, just as great as B&H in terms yeah. of returns being really flexible and shipping times being fast and all that. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you posted you on have, uh, social media about, have, about it, about it. The yes. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't work for them or anything like that. I just had this realization when I was like frustrated. There's been a lot of new cameras and lenses released this year. So I've been sort of trying to get nobody, no company sends me anything early. So oh. I have to buy it myself. So I'm like right on the, the button as soon as pre-orders open up. And yeah. B&H has burned me a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been looking for alternatives for sure. Mm. Do you have to pay a lot of taxes? Do you have the VAT tax and everything in Norway? Or yeah. So we pay around 25% on top of the price that it's um, mm. imported from. So usually when we look at the website, it's like, oh, this is, this is really cheap. And then when we get in the mail, you get also a mail from the customs. And it's like, yeah, you need to pay like um, $1,000 extra or something like that. So um, yeah. Hold on a second. So I'm just trying to imagine this experience. Do they not break down the estimated VAT tax when you check out? Or do you have a sense or, or do you not know until customs makes their own assessment and you get the bill? Well, it used to be you did you... Well, you always have a clue because you know in Norway it's twenty five percent on top, no matter what. But now B and H no, has no, this no. Um, 
this feature that they can include the VAT tax on top once you purchase. So when you get the, the stuff in the mail, you don't have to like think of anything. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's so good. it feels I, pretty I good. I hate the dread of, I don't know exactly how much it's, I'm going to have to pay in taxes. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally and it arrive. always arrives like three months later when you know, when you yeah. already spend the rest of your money on other stuff. So does it, is it basically even out then if you had a local camera dealer that had the same product? Yeah. I'm sure the inventory is not as high, but yeah, it if you were able to buy from them. It depends on the, um, the currency. Some like for some years, a couple of years ago, the, um, the dollar was pretty low compared to Norwegian crowns. And then, um, then we could get like a lot of equipment for pretty cheap. But now I think it's like, it's more or less the same. It's just, um, for some reason it comes faster from B&H than actually going to my local store, ordering it and receiving it <laughs> in my mail. So Gee. I don't know what kind of magic they do there, but it's, um, it's working. Have you been to the actual store? Yeah, yeah I was in um, in two thousand and nine. I was in um, I was in New York for the first time with my breakdance crew absence, and then we we were in nice. New York City for two weeks, which was pretty cool. crazy. Yeah, because uh, yeah, two New weeks. York, That's two a weeks good and, run. Yeah, it's like um, yeah, it felt it felt like two months. But uh, we were at the store, and they were like, "Yeah, we're just gonna take your stuff to the cashier," and it went like on this railing we were like yeah 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 oh, okay we did not have <laughs> this in norway <laughs> that's awesome i'm glad yeah. you got to experience that yeah <laughs> it's and pretty cool it, yeah and what was especially cool that since we were like breakdancers for, break for norway we visited the um, uh, audio department and there was a live dj so we started dancing inside the store and the dj was really good Whoa. so we were hanging around there just like jamming out that's awesome yeah. i was gonna ask so what was your uh, purpose in being there? Was it to dance like a competitive thing or just like a, on the street as like a street performer or what was your, yeah, that's a good question. A trip? I think we, um, there's in Norway, we have a lot, have a lot of good exchange programs. So I think we just like applied for money to go to the U S to dance because since break dance and hip hop comes from like Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens and like generally all of America, we wanted to go back to the source and we were pretty young. It's like, yeah. 12 years ago. So we, we have been dancing for a couple of years and it felt really cool to like travel to New York. So we met like some of the really old school legends from New York and trained with them and they're like trainees and stuff. So it was like really cool. But we, that's amazing. Yeah. We always almost got arrested too because at that time we, um, we were on, we're on uh, Norway's Got Talent and uh, we had this like really cool show that we, we played everywhere, right? So we're like, yeah, we should we should go to the streets, just go to the subway and make a show. And the thing about this show, we had one really good beatboxer, and then we we're us breaking. So we bought um, a rechargeable uh, speaker with a microphone from B and H, and then we <laughs> took it to the subway. But we didn't put out any hats or like ask for money. We just wanted to like do a good show. And I mean, the guards at the subway started clapping and people were stopping. It was like this like this like a like a stage performance right yeah and people like, like oh, this movie. is so cool yeah and then the cops showed up and we were like uh-oh and then like asked for passports and we left them at the hotel oh. because we were scared of getting robbed and they're like do you have a permit for for dancing here we're like no we were, we were just from norway we're just kids <laughs> yeah so we, we don't speak english <laughs> no no we almost did that but um since we weren't making any money and we were just like giving people a good time 
this one cop, he was like really interested in getting us into jail. But the two others wow. were uh, pretty easygoing. They're like, ah, uh, they were like going to the corner and like whispering. And then we, then they let us go. So luckily, or we might still be in the States. <laughs> yeah, seriously. You never know what happens once <laughs> no. they, they take you in. But gosh, that would be such a mess. I mean, the, the amount of paperwork they would have to do, I would think would be exponentially more uh, annoying if you have to arrest somebody international. Yeah. I don't know. I, I would guess. But, yeah. But, but, the funny, the, like we have, we've been traveling quite a lot with the, our breakdance crew. We started in 1999 and we're still going. We have like four. I was going to ask. Yeah. Cool. We have, we have around four, four or five, like, um, full night shows that we can play at theaters and stuff like that. And, okay. uh, one of the guys in my crew, he's, he's like, uh, he has dual citizenship from Colombia and Norway. So every time we go to the States, he gets in trouble for no reason. So they, okay. so when we go through customs, all of us like swoop through fine. And then they're like, um, come here a little bit. It's like, oh, not yeah. again. Come to this back room. We need to talk. Yeah. So then <laughs> yeah. this one time, I think it was almost like two hours waiting for him at like the baggage claim because we have no clue where he went. And then he, he came out like, you guys are not going to believe this. And we're like, what happened? And then, First, he had to sit in line with a lot of like illegal immigrants and stuff. And he, he looks, he's from Colombia and he has pretty like dark skin. So he's like, I, yeah. I don't belong here with these illegal immigrants. I, uh, I'm from Norway. I just want to go <laughs> to dance. Right. And they're like, oh, oh, you're a professional break dancer. And they started laughing and like, yeah, right. We're all professional break dancers. So he's like, but seriously, let me show. So he had to actually dance for the custom uh, officers. <laughs> and they started no. and they started clapping and did he did like head spins and like spinning on the ground and everything and after that they're like oh, okay but the thing is that his passport was um was filed a report on by Interpol which is like international police yeah because yeah, he, sure. he he lost his colombian passport and then he tried to get into the states cuz and then he was flagged so um, uh, yeah it was a bit of so a hassle yeah, I can't imagine. What an interesting, uh, like, I guess, the, so you said he was born and raised in Norway? He just happened to have parents from Columbia or something? Yeah. This is my, just, that, that, my that, This is my daughter, Amalia. She oh. was the guy, uh, hey, Amalia. girl who wrote the uh, Hi. <laughs> I like the way you write. You write really well. Oh, she can't hear you. She can't hear me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's but okay. And there's the rest of the family coming in. Yeah. Do you have any other kids? Yeah, we have one, um, one other, another girl, and she is uh, just turned one years old. So it's uh, it's a pretty busy, uh, busy time. Yeah, park. man. Yeah, That's but it's a lot of fun. Well, I mean, at least I, I'm, I'm curious what the kind of day to day situation is in Norway and mm. what you guys are dealing with. But have you had more time to spend with family? Or are you basically indoors more than you otherwise would be, or are things pretty open there? Uh, Norway, I would say Norway is one of the countries that made it like best through the pandemic so far. We have a really low uh, death toll and also a really low infection number. So, but nice. once, like, I think it was like March 14th or something like that. The prime minister of Norway just came out and said, okay, this is the, this is the hardest restriction since the war. And we're going to, um, we're going to put into play now. And then we basically stayed home for like, Kindergarten, schools, jobs, everybody had a home office for like five weeks. At least I spent like five weeks uh, almost not going out, only going to the store. 
Yeah. And then wow, um, five weeks. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was pretty long. And then um, once it started opening up and we had like, because once the pandemic hit, nobody knew anything, right? So everybody was scared out of their mind and people started like hoarding toilet paper. I don't Did you guys do that in the U.S. as well? Oh my God. The U.S. got so much, for lack of a better phrase, so much shit for that. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, everyone was saying, <clears throat> you know, this tends to happen. I, I suppose I do live in a bit of an echo chamber being in the U.S. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, of course, Americans would hoard all the toilet paper. That's the dumbest thing to hoard, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. But okay, so it wasn't just us. That's good to know. <laughs> no. Yeah. And my uh, my girlfriend was like, we're watching the news because uh, we can see stores were all out of toilet paper. And I was like, oh, we need to get toilet paper. And she's like, oh, those idiots yeah. buying all the toilet paper. Why do you need that for? I'm yeah. like, uh, I bought some. It's in the it's in the basement. She's like, oh, my God, are you yeah, kidding yeah, yeah. me? <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't hurt to have extra, but I do hardly think that's the first thing we would legitimately run out of and not be able to manufacture in a pinch if we really needed. Yeah, but also yeah. you can just like wash or whatever. If you're in yeah. need, toilet paper is not essential, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, at least after that um, period, Norway got pretty good like infection wise. So then um, during the summer, we opened up the country for... For other people like coming back to work and like tourists and stuff. So it was like um, a less crowded summer in Norway and a lot of Norwegians didn't go abroad. Um, so I was going to ask, do you, is travel pretty common there being in Europe? I would guess it is yeah. to go to you know, yeah. nearby countries at a, at a minimum, if not yeah, you know, far. Norway, I think Norwegians <laughs> are going like all across the globe, but um, Spain is very popular for like the older generation. A lot of people have okay. like um, holiday houses there and stuff, but Spain was like one of the worst places to go. Oh, I know. I have mm. some friends that live there and they were, they were dealing with some mental health issues just because Spanish people in general are so sort of extroverted in yeah. their social lives, you know, out till midnight every night mm. blah, 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 and, and having to stay home locked in. It, it didn't make sense. I, I think a lot of them ended up leaving the, the bigger cities and, and kind of going out to the countryside to try yeah. and get some relief eventually. But mm. even that was difficult yeah. to do. There. It's, yeah. it's not like that in Norway. In Norway, we, the, I think the best meme actually, at least in Norway that came out for this pandemic was, okay, so now we're done with the two meter distancing. Now we can go back to the five meter distancing because in Norway, it's, uh, <laughs> Norway is not yeah. known for being like very open and inclusive in the beginning. You have to yeah. like get to know a Norwegian before you're like, oh, hey, it's a nice guy. Because if people, when people move here or like come here on holiday, people are, oh, Norwegians are so cranky and doesn't talk to us. We don't talk to people huh. on like the bus stop. We just look down sure. or whatever. But um, so you you must have really loved New York because that's you're basically like New Yorkers. It must be something about the the cold weather. Maybe it's like the winter vibe. That's just how you are. I don't know. Yeah, probably. We also we're a pretty small country. But compared yeah. to our, our size, compared to like people who live here, you probably have like your own, like your own country. If we spread all the Norwegians out like um, evenly, uh, you have a lot of room, and we have um, yeah. people live in the strangest places here. Like how so? It, because the the country is like we have a lot of mountains and fjords and stuff. So people like yeah. for some reason build houses like deep in the very end of the fjords and. There's not like many metropolitan cities here. We have like one big city that's Oslo and my city yeah. is the second largest and it feels really small. So hmm. yeah, 
So I think you know, yeah, I want to Google just, Maps. Your what's the name of your city? Bergen. Bergen. B e r g e n. Oh, I actually guessed right. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, Bergen, Norway. There it is. How do people? You know, I always see these on like Airbnb or in some like awesome movie. How on earth do people build in some of these remote locations? Do you have any idea? Are people pretty handy? Is that something that's like they just pick up tools and start, <laughs> or do yeah, they have a lot of money and then they just invest a, in, in? In Norway, we have a lot of like fishing industry and yeah. logging, and like we use nature a lot here for uh, for resources and also exporting a lot of like salmon and um, and other stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think Norwegians are less, are just grown up with using using nature and like a lot of people have boats, so they use their boat to get like wood and what they need to buy huts uh to build huts and like houses everywhere and there's a there was a lot of farming as well too in norway so there's a lot of farms on remote locations and less traveled roads yeah yeah it's one place i yeah i don't think i've been anywhere in norway yet so Mm. you're really up there what would be the best time just middle of uh summer is that sort of the ideal uh weather Um, time or do you prefer winter uh, both both are pretty cool. Like my city is insanely beautiful when it's sunny, and it's uh, mm. still beautiful now that it's overcast. But sunny is definitely the place here. But what I would do is I wanted I want I wanted I would come two times to Norway, and then okay. because if you go way up north, you have the Northern Lights, which you've probably seen, the green yeah, the green sure. lights. Yeah, and yeah. the thing is like. In the winter, we have the northern lights in the north of Norway. In the summer, then you have the midnight sun. So the sun never sets. So it just, it just hangs like just above okay. the water lines. So it never See, gets dark. And in the winter, it's dude, dark for I, three months. I keep, I, I keep zooming out and scrolling up to see just how far Norway goes. And it appears it goes further north in Sweden. It goes further north in Finland. You guys have that entire coastline, yeah. basically, mm. until you hit Russia, it yeah. looks like. Holy crap. How far, how much of Norway have you yourself explored? Have you actually been up in that area or do you mostly yeah. stick to your... I'm pretty oh lucky because usually, I don't know how it's for you, but usually people are not that good at being tourists in their own country. But yeah, but I, because, I of, the dan- because yeah. of the dancing that we've been doing, we, um, we've been doing this project with something called the Cultural Backpack, where we do shows for like school kids from like all the kindergarten all the way up to like high school kids. So we've been okay. traveling Norway for seven years straight, touring and playing like over Whoa. a thousand performances, like in every small place you can imagine. So I've been all over Norway. So I'm pretty lucky. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. what a wonderful like passport to the world to to have dances. Sort of the, how does that? Uh, are you guys funded by like a school, or do you earn money for your performances, or like how is that? Is it reinforced by the local community? Yeah, I'm just curious. There's a lot of like support, uh, support things that you can apply for, and but for some reason, hip hop culture and people are usually pretty lazy at applying for grants and stuff like that. So the sure. thing we did when we were kids, we did like small shows at local malls and like events and stuff like that. But once we figured out that we wanted to do this like full time and like put our energy into it, then we just said, okay, we're just gonna work and we're gonna. Um, save some of our salary so that we have money to uh, make new shows and do stuff like that. So we've been we've been pretty like professional. Uh, we used to say that we're the most unprofessional professional group there is because we're like <laughs> we're, we're eight completely different people that 
in any other circumstance, we wouldn't be friends or whatever because we're so goddamn uh, different. But once we have that dancing component, then we work like magic together. But also the, the thing why we got, got to travel that much is the cultural backpack, which I told you about. That's uh, a mm -hmm. set fee per day, per show. So if you're three people, that's one fee. And if you're eight people, that's one fee. So no matter how many people shows up or uh, where you go, you get the same amount every day. And then you also get like uh, diet fees every day. Expenses are uh, are met like hotels and rental cars. So everything is paid for and it's pretty, pretty nicely paid to be a dancer at least. That's, yeah. That's wonderful. That's yeah. so, <laughs> yeah, you are in a, a lifestyle that I know absolutely nothing about other mm. than, you know, I'm just the random person on the street that sees these performances and like, I could never do that. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of move on. Uh, it's incredible. That's, I, I can't even imagine. Is Norway the type of country that, that people do kind of road trips through, or is this, some of this looks pretty rugged in the terrain. Can you actually drive like from one end to the other? Or is yeah, that not? You have a lot practical? of like uh, dirt roads and stuff like that, but it's yeah. uh, it's fully possible to go anywhere because people live in the strangest places and there's road to all these houses no matter where you go. But um yeah, I have a yeah. I have a sports car and I can drive everywhere in Norway. Okay. Yeah. And so, now I've discovered this place called uh Svalbard. Oh yeah. Svalbard. Svalbard. Yeah. yeah. Is that its own country? I've literally never heard of this place. It's way up there. Svalbard oh is an, I think it's an island that is owned by Norway, but there's a lot of like research facilities and stuff like that. So uh -huh. I know Russia has a part in that and a bunch of other countries. But I've okay. been to Svalbard one time and it's the most amazing place you'll ever go to. It used to be like a, no mi a mining mining place. And then once the, uh -huh. once the mine is depleted, then they just pack up and leave. So if you search... Svalbard and the pyramid or pyramidan. What? Okay. Svalbard right. and the pyramid. Let's take a look here. There's a Russian mining town called the pyramid, which is now, it looks like, um, what's the name of that? Um, the Sirius from the nuclear uh, plant that blew up in Ukraine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Chernob Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Chernobyl, yeah. And it looks the same yeah, yeah. because they just like packed up and left in like a couple of days. So the houses are intact, so just like everything is intact. Oh yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Oh man, someday, someday. well, I suppose years from now, I, I I need to spend more time in this part of the world. I swear to God, it's so cool. How is, and I'm guessing the answer is it's fine, but if, if you started as me, an American, wanted to explore and go deep uh, through Norway. Is is it pretty easy to get around in terms of like the language barrier and everything? It seems like English is pretty common, but is it the same when you get outside of the major cities? Are people pretty fluent yeah. in English? Yeah, or I would I have to we have uh, English uh, like second language in school. So from you start okay. school, you learn English every day. Now, usually, and there's all the kids, all the kids got TikTok. So everybody knows English now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm. So a TikTok for a break dancer must be like a exciting breakout in social media. Do, are you active on that? Do you actually do it? No, because or any uh, of your friends? Yeah. Some of my friends are pretty, got a good following and are pretty good at posting, but I've been break dancing for like 21 years. So the last like five years, I haven't been that motivated to do a lot of training and, um, like doing a lot of breakdance because I've been doing it for so long and it goes in waves, right? Because 
and it's the same with photography because sometimes you're really stoked on doing your own projects and work and sometimes just like doing wedding work and or advertising work is yeah. like oh my god another one so the last few <laughs> years i haven't been problem, uh, yeah. i haven't been that into breaking because i've been doing so much photography do you i'm looking at your feed right now do you yeah. do much photography of break dancers or is that more of a video thing no i used i used to do it uh, a long time ago but it's something okay. it's something with uh, for me it's like uh, asking you do you take uh, a lot of pictures of other photographers <laughs> it's like, mm. yeah. It's, uh, yeah so for for some reason, uh, when I when I studied photography in 2008, I had this awesome teacher, which was a, like a real classical, really strict guy. He did only black and white photography on Hasselblad cameras, and what he focused okay. on doing was um, documenting HIV and AIDS victims in Africa. So he was like a mm. really serious person. He was like, if you're gonna be a good photographer, you have to let go of everything you know and start learning because if you just continue taking dance photos you're not going to get anywhere and i was like okay mm. so then for the next two years i didn't take any dance photos um and after that mm. i've taken some but i just there's so many good dance photographers that i'm just like yeah i'm just gonna let them take that and then uh, i can focus on, uh, on other stuff that i think is um more interesting yeah you have some pretty stunning scenery and it looks like you're in some sort of uh, airplane or helicopter every other day <laughs> a lot of skydiving yeah i started in started skydiving in 2013 and i've been thinking okay. about it for wow. for many many years and uh once i just signed up for the course there was no turning back but then after yeah, i was gonna say so you must have done it quite a lot to not have to be don't don't they require you to be in tandem with somebody else for a certain number of hours before you can go by yourself or something like that? I'm not uh, really sure. I haven't been skydiving much. Yeah, this is going to surprise you because you can jump alone after three jumps. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, but, that's still yeah, you know, but, three but the, jumps. That's but the first, you know, I've never been once, so that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So the first <laughs> three jumps, you have uh, two um, instructors that is holding on to you, one on each side, but you're not strapped to anything. Oh, wow. So they just, oh, okay. they just make sure that you're stable in the air. And then once you're not passing out on them or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And freaking out, looking down like, oh, shit, this is not working out. So <laughs> they just make sure you pull yeah. your handle at the correct altitude. And then, yeah, but that's the crazy, craziest thing because I did a tandem jump once and then like, okay, I'm going to do this. And at the course, you learn so much about how to exit the plane, how to be stable in the air and what you're supposed to do. But once you pull that parachute, you're on your own. And then you got this like 170 square feet cloth over your head and you're like, oh shit, I'm going to land this thing. And I'm where am I going to land it? Uh -huh. So it feels pretty crazy once that, once that parachute is open because you're so euphoric. Once that opens, you're like, yeah. oh, I'm alive. Yeah. And then you're <laughs> like, oh, shit, I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. How on earth do they, you know, obviously I've heard of the phrase landing zone or site. Like they have yeah. a predetermined ideal spot to set down. But how do you actually find that when you're that far up or maybe some clouds come through like how on earth do you have a compass on, on your wrist or something to help you navigate or mm. i mean or do you just pick something close enough and hope for the best no, there's, <laughs> seems like you'd be uh hiking quite yeah. a ways if you if you chose poorly yeah. yeah that's a good question um there's set um set values for how the, how big the the drop zone is supposed to be and how big the landing yeah. area is supposed to be so the experienced skydivers they have one landing area which is 
well, not that small, but pretty small. And then you have a student field, which is actually like a huge cornfield or something like that, where you can basically land anywhere. So and you're it's never easy to see. Yeah, from yeah, you, yeah. You can see it once your parachute open because you have an altimeter on your hand, so you keep looking at okay, so seven thousand feet, all right. So five more seconds, okay, six thousand, five thousand. Then you pull at your desired altitude, and then uh, once you check that your parachute opens nicely and there's no like line twist or something like that, then you're like, okay, where am I now? Where am I going? Okay, che- always checking the altimeter, and then you just like sort of like drive like a car. When you know, like yeah, yeah, with the cool. toggles, and then then you have a, like a landing pattern. So like an airplane, you always land towards the wind. Hmm. So you just turn into the wind. And, yeah, but it's cool. uh yeah, it's the um, one of the coolest things I do. Someday, I really it's on my it. list. Yeah, you should. You really should. <laughs> have you ever had a line twist in or anything like kind of like uh like scary as a moment in skydiving, or has it all been pretty safe and smooth? Uh, it feels skydiving feels pretty safe. And, uh, because yeah. you also have two parachutes, okay. uh, like yeah. compared to base jumping where you jump off a mountain and you're pretty close do to the mountain. Do you pack your own chute? Yeah, I do now, but do you can, you can have packers yeah. do it, but it, it costs like, um, uh, 10 bucks every time you want someone, someone to pack your rig. So oh, then that's not too bad. How no, can I ask like what's the equivalent, uh, us dollars for an, an actual jump? Do you know what that would be in Norway? Uh, let's see. So maybe. 20 between 20 and 30 dollars depending on on where you are in the world that's amazing yeah so 20 and 30 dollars yeah what it's, it's all it's almost like hundreds. an ex- expensive bus ride to go up the thing is that the equipment is pretty pretty uh expensive you rent that i guess yeah or yeah. buy it which yeah if, be, if yeah, you buy yeah. it you can buy you can buy used ones which is they last for like 20 years the equipment so once you, if you buy it new like i did you pay like ten thousand dollars or something like that I got to say, I'm sure the demand on used skydiving equipment for new skydivers is probably not very high. I'm I'm betting those people would want something brand new that's never been worn out, but maybe not. You would think so, yeah. but usually people that start skydiving are pretty young, so they don't have any money or like there's uh, fair enough, and yeah. stuff. So then they're like, yeah, I just want a cheap rig. Anyone selling anything? And then they end up like using like <laughs> worn out stuff that's like things keep flapping uh, off of and yeah. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> so it's like once you turn professional, like, yeah, I'm getting a new rig. <laughs> Fair enough. That's cool. Yeah. All right, man, I'm slowly uh, creating a list here of activities for me mm-hmm. to do when I eventually visit Norway. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, I'll take you to uh, my I'll take you to my drop zone. And the, <laughs> the cool. cool thing here is like because Norway is so spectacular with the mountains and stuff is like people come here from all over the world to skydive because it's so amazing here. Mm. And we also have uh, something called Extreme Sport Veco, which is Extreme Sports Week. And it's the biggest extreme sport festival in the world. So then one cool. week one week a year, we have like every extreme sport you can imagine comes here and um, have fun for uh, for a week. So that's, uh, that's nice. pretty cool. Oh, you mentioned uh, earlier your the training. What kind of training goes into breakdancing is it a lot of like weights and stuff or stretching i feel like you kind of have to do every aspect you have to work out every aspect of your body but I'm, I'm wondering what what is the training if you were trying to get in shape for you know a tour or a yeah. performance or something like that what would that look like like in the first few years when you're dancing you get pretty uh you're, you're you don't know anything about training or your body or how you're supposed to function and what feels good and what doesn't feel good so the first few years of breakdancing you just you just come to the to the training spot, put on some music, and just start 
going at it. But not throwing like, yourself around on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and you dance like on the ground, right? I mean, yeah. I'm assuming there's not really any pads or mats or anything. No, there's it's nothing. Asphalt or yeah, and people yeah. like wow. in Norway we pretty we have pretty nice training spots, but usually when you go anywhere else in the world, people train on like concrete or like tiles or like subway stations and stuff like that. And then those floors are so goddamn hard. And we're come we're come mm. like soft b boys from Norway coming there to train. We're like hitting our heads and banging our elbows and like, ah, oh, it's want to go home. It's so hard here. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but back to the 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 training part. It's because there's a lot of technique to like get the momentum going. Because a lot of people can do like if you want to do like stand on your head and try to spin one round, you could probably do it if you just tried it right now. If you just throw yourself around but the thing is you have to train a lot of technique <laughs> and te- yeah and know. technique takes so much time and then you slowly but surely once you train the technique the muscle to keep your body weight up also comes along so you don't you can't train strength training but usually it slows you down because a couple of years ago when crossfit really kicked off i got sucked into that yep. world so that i just started training crossfit like five days a week and my thighs got so big that i couldn't do breakdance it was so hard wow. doing the moves that I was to, supposed to do. Okay, huh. and my ass was you bigger. Keep your, you got to stay lean and keep fast. I guess, yeah. yeah once you get a certain amount of uh, muscle mass, that mm. you actually get slow. Yeah, and also you <laughs> and, have to once you do stuff with your body, you you feel every millimeter of your body. You're like, oh, this feels nice, and you always sort of like know where you are body wise. So once you add some muscle that just arrives like in one month, it's it feels unnatural and really hard to like uh, throw around. Okay. It's just, yeah, uh, I was curious. Yeah. For now, it's just like going to the studio and just dancing. That's the best. That's nice. You have an actual studio area. Yeah. No, we, what are her days like? Is she in school? She is in uh, kindergarten. And uh, okay. so we, we turn her in at 8.30 and then we pick her up at 3.30 every day. So that's my like work hours. So then I just like, um, do photography work or video work and then um, pick them up at 3.30, make dinner, hang around, play, put them to bed, and then I start editing. <laughs> yeah, as uh, soon as they're resting and asleep, you really start your work, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, but are you doing everything yourself or do you have someone uh, that does like editing? Yeah, I do. Or? I do everything. The only things, I have played around with outsourcing. Mm aspects but i've always taken it back in house because the outsourcing you know after spending a fair amount of time and investment to try it you know i I never judge any place that i outsource to um with the first experience i never judge it too hard because i know there's always like growing pattern or growing pains uh with with that kind of thing but it's still like i always have to bring everything back uh but Mm. Oh, well, it's it's what it is. Uh, the only thing that I still consistently outsource is occasionally if I have a really, really long video yeah. for um, Patreon and it's like a review or something, uh, I'll send it off to a guy who will kind of convert that into a transcription article-esque thing yeah. so that I don't have to... Because the worst thing in the world for, for what I do in terms of output is to create a really long video and then have to 
basically write that same video in text form. It's yeah. just miserable because you're basically, yeah. you're like doing the same work twice. I mm. hate it. So, so. <laughs> you, you do that because you want to have an article as well that is written. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I've been back and forth and I've tried to get a, a sense of what people prefer if it's video or article. I per, uh, personally prefer article because you yeah. don't have to have sound on. You can kind of scroll through if you need to be quiet and you don't want to disrupt someone else. I just think articles are way more. I can also get through an article a lot mm. faster. A video even if it's really well done, there's a lot of stuff I just kind of want to skip over. Even a video I've made myself, yeah. I'm like, I should probably just skip over this stuff. But um, in an article, you can just scroll through and get the idea in, in just a few minutes versus 25 minutes of watching a video. So yeah, it, right. they each have their advantages and I want to provide something for both. But yeah. again, writing, sitting down and writing an article about a video you just made is so... Miserable. It's just not oh, yeah. fun. But yeah. you, so either I write the entire article from scratch and just don't even bother with a video or I do a video and then send it off to a guy who does an okay job of transcribing. Yeah, nice. But do you also convert your uh, reviews to a podcast just for like sound? No, that's a good idea. Uh, but no, I haven't thought about that. Yeah, because huh. I feel, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself walking around with a headset like 24-7 now, always listening yeah. to podcasts and because... Now you get like twice twice amount of stuff done. You can listen to something yeah. uh, like inspirational, or so you can learn something, and you can also like sit editing or do whatever you need to do. So, hundred percent. I mean, that, yeah. that, there's no. That's the magic of a podcast. Mm. Uh, you can do anything. Anybody can listen, and 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 you can do any other activity as long as you don't have to communicate with somebody around you yeah. uh, while listening to a podcast. It's. I agree. Uh, it's a smart idea. The problem is. If you want to take one piece of content like a video and have it be all these other things like a podcast, the audio only for podcast, some of it for article, it's really tough in, in the genesis of making the video yeah. to account for all that and not have too many things where I'm showing it on camera with an action, which yeah. just wouldn't translate to a podcast well. Or yeah, there's a lot that doesn't translate to an article very well uh, just because jokes or yeah. whatever little quips don't don't relate yeah, right. <laughs> in a video it might make sense and then it, so it's so tough to to strike that balance mm. but yeah I'm, i'm with you i think podcasts are and i've done you know maybe 80 90 episodes of a previous podcast with a friend of mine yeah and somehow he and i managed that many episodes just the two of us talking yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of realizing fun. that's that's not common that's pretty hard to to pull off yeah. but yeah well that's kind of why i started this podcast i just wanted to get other people uh, especially given this unique year just get some insight into what the lives of everybody else is what, what it's looking like yeah i don't know about you but i tend to not only listen to a lot of podcasts but consume a lot of social media news and i feel like i don't have a honest understanding of what someone's actual Life, life is like, in, yeah. In, is like yeah. yeah. And I want to reconnect with that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this this happened pretty random because I started following you on Instagram a while ago. I saw some of your photos, probably with the Ring of Fire um, effects on. And nice. I thought it was pretty cool. And when I, I don't follow a lot of wedding photographers, but your uh -huh. page stood out. And also you made a lot of other content that I liked, like all the reviews and the videos and like, You seem to have like a huge ecosystem of stuff you do. And people mm -hmm. who manage to do a lot of things really inspire me. I, I rarely just like follow one guy who's a nature photographer or whatever, but people who like 
can make stuff happen in different places that inspires me because that's also what i'm trying to do with like combining my dance and my photography and mascara like combining all the projects into one thing i still haven't managed it like fully i'm working on it right now but that's what struck me the first about you like oh this guy's doing a lot of things and i was like how the hell did he get time to do all these things and still be a wedding <laughs> photographer because i've shot a lot of weddings yeah. and i know there's so much work like the planning mm -hmm. and checking locations and then you're doing the wedding which is like 16 to 20 hours sometimes and yeah. then you have like i yeah. don't know how much how much do you deliver for a wedding and for a much, wedding so much, yeah. i will say it's probably half as much work here as what you're thinking it is uh most weddings here are about eight hours i do have some that go 10 12 hours but that's pretty uncommon but yeah over the course even of just eight hours i'll, I'll shoot about five thousand images yeah. and then i'll edit that down to 800 or so that are fully edited and you know delivered to the client so it's mm. still a lot but that's a that's a huge delivery yeah. 800 photos that's insane <laughs> i used yeah, to i used but, to um i used to do that i chose they could they could choose like 300 photos i think that's what they're doing okay. now uh, i used to do and now i just cut it down to 200 because usually people just like keeping them but they never show like all this stuff anywhere so just like that's okay yeah. i'm not gonna spend my time uh, editing and now I, I was also very like because i said they can choose 20 photos that are really good from the actual like official shoot of the couple and then i choose to rest from the rest of the day but now i just upload everything on something called pixie set and then they can like choose whatever photo they like so then i cool. then i cut all my time on like editing or picking out stuff in the um, before editing so try to like streamline yeah. and make it more efficient because i after spending so many times sitting hours and hours of editing i was like okay i need to change switch something up yeah that's a good strategy it makes a lot of sense i've i've also gotten everything in my workflow as far as wedding photography is related very streamlined and use that as sort of a, a, a learning hmm, how do i describe it I guess just the discipline of constantly looking for where I can spot inefficiencies and then mm -hmm. optimizing my way out of it yeah. has translated into why I'm able to to take that same principle and mindset and do video content and do podcast content. I'm very efficient in all of that stuff. So it uh, isn't as much work. It's really painful in the beginning. Don't get me wrong. If yeah. I start a new project, a new endeavor like well, I don't know what else there is left for me to be interested in right now, but uh, video, podcasts, article <laughs> yeah. writing, and, and actual wedding photography is kind of the big, big four. But if there was something new, uh, like I was really resistant to doing any type of polished, well-produced videos forever, just because it is deceptively complicated. There's so much to account for to get it consistent and get the audio right and everything. And yeah. it's just annoying. But, you know, after you do that, the heavy lifting of just learning the ecosystem of what you're editing in. I use DaVinci Resolve, by the way, mm -hmm. which I highly recommend. I yeah. love DaVinci. Um, once you just put in the time and then start identifying inefficiencies, you can, you can yeah, you can knock things out. Yeah. I also don't have kids, so that that I think really does help. Yeah. Although I am some sometimes envious of the structure a kid forces in your life. You know, you mentioned you drop her off at a certain time, you get her back at a certain time, she goes to bed, you start working after that. Like that structure probably would benefit me because right now I just kind of like I wake up and I think, okay, what do I feel like getting done? There's always something on the list, so I just kind of pick and go. Yeah. But there's hardly any structure to it. I'm sure I could up my output even more if I actually had an outside force, uh, like a child 
child yeah, <laughs> making right. me. But you're yeah. there's no structure at all. You just know when you're supposed to turn them in and then when you're supposed okay, to pick them up. But structure <laughs> that went out the window when the first kid arrived. And you have no oh, wow. you don't have any clue what's expecting you, but it is uh, yeah. it's really, really rewarding. But yeah. of all the things you do, what's the thing that gives you the most joy? Uh, wedding photography. Yeah, still 100%. Knowing that I'm the... the and, and what's funny about that is most of the work that I do in terms of creative content doesn't get seen by anybody but the couple and then their friends and family. Mm. Like I don't... You know, sometimes I'll share a full gallery with patrons or some smaller group just for educational benefits. But... Yeah, I sincerely love, I think I was built to be a wedding photographer and I, I love all aspects of the day, even what a lot of photographers describe as like the boring photos of candidates during cocktail hour or families. Like I love all of it. And yeah. I love that I'm contributing to, uh, you know, this new family's history and like in a very intimate and involved way. You know, yeah. I've shot about 400 weddings and that's just countless, uh, numbers of, future children and grandchildren and families down the line that are going to look back on these photos that I made. They're not going to think about me as the photographer. They're only going to care about the content, the mm. person in the photo, but I know it was me. And I just find that incredibly, infinitely fulfilling yeah. and I love it. So yeah. Nice and you know, a lot of what I do is motivated from wedding photography as the the epicenter. Yeah. It all stems from that. If I'm not actively shooting weddings, everything else sort of suffers down the chain. Uh, other than these podcasts, which I find enjoyable because yeah. I get to meet really interesting people, far more interesting than myself, <laughs> <laughs> that travel the world and and you know, like you kind of outlined, you have a very awesome life. But most of it's still like the connection that we have was if I wasn't a wedding photographer, yeah. you probably wouldn't have come. I wouldn't have done the Ring of Fire. You wouldn't have stumbled across my work. We wouldn't be talking right now. Yeah, like, right. It's all motivated from that yeah. epicenter. So. That is my favorite thing. I, I enjoy other things. I would say the only other thing in life that I'm incredibly passionate about is just music writing, which yeah. I do completely for myself. What kind I of don't music? have any expectations or aspirations with that. It's all uh, kind of just indie rock yeah. stuff. It's uh, yeah. Um, I have guitar and drums and all that. So I, I play and write just my own, own stuff and yeah. I find that really fulfilling. But again, it's not really, I don't, this year I've been uh, promoting it a little bit more yeah. just because I've had more time to do promotion of music stuff, but I make negative money from it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, very yeah, in the I hole. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you do wedding video as well or just photos? No, just photos. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about it because I do love audio work uh, as, as it relates to music. Yeah. I do a lot of recording and stuff for, for that, but the pressure of, and, and the overhead of dealing with audio on a wedding day, I know not all videographers capture audio. Some just take the core video and put it to music and mm. that's fine. And clients are happy, but the way I would want to do it, I would want to capture, you know, with wireless lav mics and everything, like what they're saying and really stitch together a narrative. And, uh, I just, yeah, for me, a lot of my creative energy is it requires a very minimalist uh, approach as it relates to gear. Yeah. Like when I'm in my best mindset of creating a unique scene in terms of lighting or some technique, like the Ring of Fire or using a prism or whatever, like I need to not have any distractions. I have extreme ADD, yeah. and if if I have too many bits and bobs and things to like keep up with, I can't focus on some new insight, some new 
I don't know, perspective on the world. Yeah. Uh, and so still, still photography with just a one camera, a couple lenses or whatever, that is just me at my prime. That is when I'm in my zone. So I've always gravitated toward that. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, what's your, what's I love your... video and I don't know how people can do video is, is incredibly, it's deceptively difficult sometimes. Yeah. I usually, say? I usually have another shooter with me that only does video and that works cool. really well because then we, yeah. And we have sort of like a team, so he's always behind my back somewhere, and he doesn't go in the way. And we get we go we get the moments both in video and in photo, and that works really well. And then we that have, makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we just like you streamlining your workflow and figuring out what works for you. We just figured out that we're we're offering like not that expensive. It's well, it's pretty expensive video, but not that not as expensive as it could have been. And then we say, okay, we we use everything that's good. So once you do the raw editing, everything that you would normally think, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. Not like it doesn't have to be top-notch, but everything that's usable, we use and put together a timeline and put the music and make it in slow motion and do whatever you need to do to make And then they get the full edit, which is like maybe what we say is like between between 15 and 40 minutes long depending on how much good stuff we get oh, wow. we, we never promise yeah. we never promise anything but at least 15 minutes from the whole day that we're going to get that and also from that we once the raw editing is done we pull out 2 to 3 minutes of the best moments of that so then they can have like a social media video to share whatever they want and that works really awesome. well because then the the second shooter he just shoots and edits and delivers and then we have like um a package for the whole thing. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I guess I haven't I do work alongside videographers often, but they already have their own sort of established businesses and the client has found them or maybe I recommended a short list of names. I don't have mm -hmm. any anybody very close to me that I'm friends with or you know, yeah. that I could do that. But you're right. I think that approach is pretty ideal. If it's a consistent person that you've got a good relationship with that you both kind of create a package deal yeah. between you. I also tend to shoot a lot of smaller ish weddings. Mm. Uh, that's not, I either go pretty small if it's sort of a traditional uh, like Christian ceremony or whatever, but then I also do for whatever reason, a huge amount of Indian weddings, which are like hundreds, you know, South Asian weddings, hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah. And so that I usually bring a second shooter for, but that's maybe like 10 a year. The yeah. other 30, uh, I usually do about 40 weddings a year. So the other 30 are hundred people, maybe less. Mm -hmm. So I, I like being the one person there who's kind of documenting everything and not have to uh, compete, even if it's comfortable competition. Yeah, right. I don't like having someone else in all black with, you know, cameras, uh, yeah, anywhere near. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> I'm very yeah. selfish in that way. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So what's your, what's yeah. your favorite setup when shooting at a, weddings? What do you bring? What do you uh, use the most? What's your favorite? Yeah, the, great question. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, the right now, the most current Canon EOS R6 with the Canon 50 millimeter F 1.2 RF mount lens. So the new 50. Yeah. And that's, that's 90% of the day right there is that combination. Uh, along with that, I will shoot the 24 millimeter 1.4. That's the EF mount. Yep. They haven't made a newer one for RF yet. Uh, love that lens. And then more recently, a 14 millimeter Samyang lens, mm. which is really ultra wide, but that's more of maybe a couple wide shots of the venue or a, a few creative photos with a couple. Mm. And then normally sitting in like my backup equipment bag. I'll have something longer, like an 85 for 
toasts, really. I never use that for uh, anything yeah. other than I don't want to be right next to the person. Where, you know, it's so awkward if you're in a huge stage or a dance floor and there's somebody giving a toast and I have to be like 10 feet away from them. It's just weird. So I bring a longer lens so I, I don't you know, distract from whoever is in the moment. Uh, but I don't use them very often. Oh, and then the tilt shift. I still, I don't know if you shoot tilt shift much, but the Canon 45 tilt shift is awesome. Mm. And with mirror, mirrorless bodies and focus peaking, they're yeah. so much easier to use because you have like the highlight oh, of yeah. what's in focus now. It's but great. That's a manual, manual focus lens, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But the way tilt shift works, it literally creates like a slice of focus through through the space in 3D. So it doesn't matter if something is right next to you or way across on the other side of the room, as long as the slice of focus mm. is where you want it, everything along that line, that slice is in focus. Yeah. So uh, it's very easy with focus peaking to, even though it's manual focus, to get a high keep rate. I, I actually use tilt shift on like even the dance floor. Nice. People moving in motion, you can get awesome stuff with tilt shift. It's amazing. That's cool. I'm going to try That's that. I was looking for like new stuff to shoot because I, I tend to find myself only only using two cameras and two lenses. And that's for many, many years, I've been buying and selling equipment, like trying to figure out the right <laughs> the right gear bag, right? And for me, what I've figured out- oh, I'm still out, searching for that. The bag itself is something I'm still on the hunt for, but the gear yeah. within it, I'm pretty sad. <laughs> I, think P I think Peter McKinnon has uh, locked down the bag. I think I haven't bought it yet, yeah. but I think it looks, uh, looks smooth. But his is like a backpack, right? Yeah. I need a sling. I need a sling that I can swivel around oh, yeah. to quickly. The backpack having to bring something that bulky up in front to swap somehow. If you're traveling, the kind of work you do, it makes a lot of sense yeah. where you're, you know, kind of set up in front of a scene or something. Like that. Yeah. But for, I don't know, for me, I need to, I need to sling. I yeah. Know. But are you only, only using one camera? For the most part, uh, during the ceremony, usually I'll have my, what is normally my backup camera uh, in my hands and using it just because I don't like switching lenses during a ceremony yeah. for fear of dropping it <laughs> or something during the ceremony. There's yeah. nothing more embarrassing. So uh, yeah, I usually use two for that, but most of the, you know, getting ready, family photos, portraits of the couple and then reception. Yeah. One camera body yeah. for sure. Yeah. I've been, uh, my setup for weddings is I have one, um, I haven't, I still haven't bought any, uh, R cameras from Canon, but I have the, the 5D, two of them. Okay. And I have one with the 35 millimeter 1.4 and one with the 85 millimeter 1.2. And having that cool. combo, I feel that because I'm not that fond of like really wide angle shots. So I feel that 35 is like perfect wide angle for wedding. And then also 85 millimeter is not too long. So then I can cover like both distance. So I usually, bring my gear bag and then I put the, um, the gear bag in the corner and then I just have um, one camera on each side through the whole day. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah that's all you need. Yeah. And then you have like yeah. two workhorse lenses that like works for anything. 3585 is a very, it's a common combination than 2450. It kind of, yeah. it, it, it almost just depends on where you like to be in physical space, like your comfort level yeah. distance physically from, from a couple. And I like being, pretty close i yeah. <laughs> like really close and i don't know if that makes anybody else uncomfortable but i like being there it is awkward at first <clears throat> but people get over it and mm. eventually you kind of start to blend in but so I, think, I shoot with that 24 all the time yeah. yeah i think it's really important when i was studying photography my teacher said that he always brought up the example that 
one of the one of the um, assignments he got in once was some really really nice photos, some um, some street portraits, and then he asked the guy, but because he felt there was something off with the photos, they were like perfectly lit, perfectly shot, everything was like amazing, and he was like, "There's something here. There's something that I can I can tell what it is." But what what did you shoot with? And he's like, "Yeah, 300 millimeter." And he's like, "Okay, that's it," because you just zoomed in instead of zooming with your feet. And once you get up close and personal, you can actually feel it in a photo. So it makes a lot of oh, sense yeah. when you say that you're you're about the the comfort the come the how, about being comfortable being close to other people makes a huge difference and difference in a wedding, I think, because one you feel yeah. that the people are actually there when they're looking yeah. at the photo. And I think that yeah plays a huge part. It comes across in their expression a lot of times, and then also just the compression of the background relative yep. to the subject. Yeah, the wider and closer you go, the the more yeah, it almost has like this 3D. It puts you the viewer in the scene a little tighter. Uh, once you get longer than an 85, especially 135, 200 millimeter, 300 millimeter range, yeah. like you. It, it's stunning. It can be stunningly beautiful, but it, it does feel like there's this distance and separation and who knows? Um, maybe, uh, maybe that's just because there is actual distance and separation. I always have a bias toward my images that I've made with longer lenses yeah. feeling like I, I wasn't as close as I should have been, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's just my own bias, but I do feel like that. You're right. If I saw someone else's work and ask them what lens they used, I'd probably be able to identify with relative accuracy, whether it was a telephoto or a, yeah. a wide angle, just based on the intimacy and the yeah feeling like I'm inserted in the scene or not. You know, yeah, it's right. an interesting point. Mm. So you studied photography in, in college or university? No, it, in university, but it's like a private school because I was, um, I was doing a lot of dance stuff and uh, really focusing on that. But at the same gotcha. time, I was, um, I've been drawing my whole life and make painting graffiti for many, many years. And when I was supposed to go to college, I was like, okay, what do I like? I like drawing. Maybe I should become an illustrator or something like that. And during the college years, I was, um, I'm not sure what college or university is equal, equal to Norway, but I think in college years, I was studying arts and crafts. And there I noticed that I was more fun of taking photos of the stuff I made than actually making the art. So then after that, I applied for a job at a local photography store. I didn't, I didn't have any knowledge about photography. I just liked taking pictures. So when somebody mm -hmm. came in and asked, asked me questions about a DSLR camera or lenses, and I, know, I didn't know anything. So I just brought home a bunch of cameras. And for a week or two, I just learned everything there was to know about like a Canon camera or DSLR, Nikon, D40 or whatever. And then I got really good at selling cameras. And when I was shooting for myself, I was shooting like cool pictures, but they didn't have a story. I didn't know how to like tell something with my photography. So then I was like, hmm, maybe I should start taking this more seriously. And then I applied for a lot of photography schools. And then I got accept accepted to one in my city. And I was like, and I got into a lot of other schools around the country, but I didn't want to move. And since I had my breaking here, so... I start I started at the the photography school here, and then I met the teacher that that I told you about before. So instead yeah. of taking dance photos, I did like everything from food photography to concerts, weddings, advertising, what you name it. And I think that has made a huge impact on my career. That I'm able to be and I, and especially I have my own wedding photography company as well. 
that I don't advertise as much on my personal channel, but I just have it as a gotcha. separate thing. And there I feel one of the most important things about being a wedding photographer is that you have to be quick to turn around. Like everything like technical and storytelling wise has to be like in your mind and also in your fingers. So when something happens, you have to turn around and then the settings and ISO and live focus, everything needs to be changed like in your fingers. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think like doing a lot of different photography work, like concerts and advertising and stuff, you get used to like doing a wide wide array of things that you are doing. Right. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really important. So that was like the main, um, and the main thing I took away from the from the education, and I think that there's a lot of people who have different opinions on like, should you go to photography school or not? And especially now in 2020, yeah. you can more or less learn anything you want to know on the internet, right? But yeah. one of the most, one of the best things that I did was like, actually like go into class, going out in the morning, getting a coffee, meeting 20 other photographers that were equally stoked as me as learning new stuff, and we had this really yeah. In lack of a better term, crazy teacher that was like really hard. <laughs> I, I liked it. Some of the people in the class didn't like it, but um, I feel that that was a, it was a good time, but you can tell from the numbers that like only three or four of the 25 in class are not photographers today. And uh, mm. I think that's for a simple reason. Wow. That's because of lack of understanding of economy. Mm. Because I feel yeah, a yeah. lot of free, there's so many good freelancers like artists and musicians and photographers and actors and whatever they all have a dream and some of them are really goddamn good at what they do but once they're finished in like acting school or whatever they just think about it somehow that it's just another job and then there's no job waiting and then you have to create your own job and i i feel we i think we had like two hours of marketing and economy total in two years Mm. which is nothing right but luckily for me, Nothing. through yeah. through, through the breakdance, because there's no breakdance job readily available for anybody. So then you just <laughs> right. have to, yeah. then you just have to make your own job, right? So we have to learn like accounting and um, marketing and whatever we needed to do to to get money. Otherwise, we would start, right? So I put that into my photography. But a lot of I know that a lot of other people don't have that gene where they are like really motivated, probably like you too, to just like go and like really crush it and like figuring out what you need to do to get to do what you want to do. And yes. I think that's yep. uh that's a huge part in like being a freelancer is not doing the thing you want to do, but all the other stuff yeah. that needs to be done. Right. Yeah, exactly. If you yeah. want to make it you, a living, at least you may, you stated that perfectly. And it's so crazy to see how many, how much talent is out there uh, that just goes unknown or unnoticed because people are just uncomfortable, you know, imposter syndrome or whatever, uncomfortable uh, marketing themselves. They don't want to feel like they're selling themselves out or monetizing their art or something like that. And so they just don't. And eventually they kind of fade away into whatever. And I think two hours. Yeah. Honestly, any, (laughs) if you're trying to be like, make this creative passion, whatever it is, breakdancing, music or your job, half of, or make it your living, Uh, you know, half of what you study and learn should be related to um, marketing in some way or business in some way. And, and that feels, I think, really uncomfortable and soul sucking and, and the opposite of what a lot of people 
growing up when they discover their passion feel like should be the priority. (laughs) It's like, I just love photography. I just want to take pictures and I want people to love them. And then I want people to pay me as if that's magically going to start happening, (laughs) which, you know, for the very rare person, it might, (laughs) but you do need some somewhat of a strategy, especially if you want to do it sustainably. I mean, almost anybody could get lucky, could be good enough to have some big break uh, at some point if they're good enough but to do it even that generally has like a an art you know a, yeah. a curve that kind of looks like that <laughs> you want you want the curve to look sort of like that yeah like the and, slow and upwards curve right yeah, yeah. slow slowly rising and mm. and also be uh ready to accept when when you're not growing anymore oh yeah here, and she, uh, things she just put on makeup here hey Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. Wow. That looks really nice. Under the Should you do that yourself? She can't hear me. <laughs> I just, does she speak English yet? Um, when, I, when I talk to her in English, she's like, what? But uh, okay. she's, she's looking she at like one word. Um, YouTube kids, <laughs> which is uh, have like uh, these uh, Russian kids speaking fairly good English. And she learns from that. She has, she has some uh, like uh, Russian English dial in now. Okay. Yeah. I meant to ask you earlier, is there a lot of Russian influence or, you know, crossover between you both being sort of sharing a border? Is that a thing? No, there's uh, not, it's not that much things. Okay. Um, no, I wouldn't say that. Cool. Um, cool. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to let you go because I, I hear the chaos ramping up behind you and I feel yeah. like we've had a really good run, but I would love to talk to you again at some point. Hopefully if you're, if you're willing, Anytime. your microphone is excellent. Well, well purchased, well researched. sounds great. Yeah. Thanks. You too. <laughs> yeah. What, what kind do you have? Yeah. Uh, this is the sure, uh, SM seven B. Nice. So it's, it's probably the most common, it's it's the old school professional like if you were a radio host yeah before the internet like you would mm-hmm. have this mic i had already owned it because i used to record guitars with it, it electric guitars sound really cool and this is mic'd up to an amp yeah. but uh you need a pretty clean and powerful preamp to mm-hmm. juice the gain on it it's not a very gainy mic yeah. so uh but yours is great yours sounds awesome i, I really like and it looks cooler too <laughs> my cat, that's my, the most important, hello. important thing yeah yeah most important thing it's got to look cool yeah. uh anyway uh just to wrap this up can you plug your instagram for anybody that wants to find you or website or whatever you prefer yes so you can find me at at andreas ruxborg which means at a-n-d-r-e-a-s-r-o-k-s-v-a-a-g cool yeah how often do you have to spell that last name um, <laughs> for people every day even Norwegians, yeah. <laughs> even Norwegians find it hard. There's every oh, really? time there come, comes a a letter in the mail, it's uh, for someone else. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> yeah, Amazing. but um, yeah, cool. that's where you find me. I post um, for some reason I don't post a lot of like photography work because I do a lot of advertising and I want to do like advertising shots on my page. So there's a lot of activities like um, skydiving and stuff like that. But I'm working on a. I'm working on a new page it's to put my work. For somebody there. like me who tends to be more wedding oriented in my Instagram, I prefer following uh, feeds like yours just because it's yeah a break from the norm for me. It's nice. Yeah, um, but anyway, let me ask you a final question because I feel that's uh, something that's really, um, really yeah. hard um, at, because I do, and probably you too, since you do music and uh, everything else, it's it's really hard to like figure out what 
what do you have like separate accounts or do you have one account because i I've, uh, for some reason i want to yeah. have like 10 different accounts one for like skydiving one for breakdancing one for jujitsu one for whatever right so yep. what do you feel about that yeah the different accounts thing if it's a distinctly different craft like jujitsu or breakdancing, I would recommend a different, I do have a separate account for like my music stuff. Yep. For example, I do cross promote a lot, mm. but, uh, at the, at the end of the day though, I think you kind of have to come to grips with what you want to prioritize, what gives you the most gratitude or, you know, sense of fulfillment and what drives you. I wouldn't do more than maybe three because you're just going to, no singular project is going to be given, I think, enough attention for yeah. you to really like excel next level every single year. You know, your, your growth is going to plateau if you spread yourself too thin for yeah. sure. And everything's going to suffer. So if you have a lot of passions or whatever, keep, keep maybe cross promoting those in like your, your more personal feed. And then, uh, it, things you really want to prioritize, maybe two others. Yeah, create separate mm. accounts for those and really make that your thing. I see that all the time with photographers that do weddings and advertising and portraiture. And when you're just killing yourself with potential clients, like they want to know that you prioritize what they want to hire you for. It's cute to see a wedding, photo you know, a photographer who does amazing photojournalism work and, and blah, blah, blah. But if you're a wedding client looking to hire a wedding photographer, you want to, see them prioritize wedding yeah, right. photos so they mm -hmm. feel like that is why they're spending thousands of dollars for you so anyway uh but again you do want i think it's totally okay to cross promote here and there mm. but make sure you you kind of make i don't know, have a focus in what is actually showing up in stories and feeds mm. so uh but yeah i feel like the the limit there is maybe like three accounts yeah it's, <laughs> it's tough and i'm not an expert i kind of still funnel everything through one account other than my music, like I said. Yeah. But, um, you know, if the podcast got big enough or something like that, you definitely need to be aware of those tipping points yeah. where something is taking more of your time or it's gaining a lot of momentum. Like, okay, yeah, I should make this its own separate right. account. Mm. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. All right, Sam, nice meeting you. Cool. And uh, let's do it Thank again sometime. I'm ready whenever yeah. you want. Awesome. All, All right. right. Yeah, maybe we'll talk in, uh, maybe in the new year sometime early. That'd be uh, awesome. That'd be awesome. Height the winter. <laughs> yeah, I'm cool, getting. Man. I'm actually getting right. a new studio uh, in a week or two, so now I'm, I'm oh. going to get a podcast studio, YouTube studio, and everything set up. So that's going to be awesome. So nice. then we'll do something from there. Okay, I will also. I'll try. I'm not going to get a studio, but I'm going to try and up my video game right now i'm just using my imac camera yeah. even though i've got like 50 cameras i could use <laughs> uh, to get some nice bokeh and everything i'm just too lazy yeah. <laughs> cool all, all right, right. well have a good day Maxime. you too bye, bye.